You all may have a seat as you're grabbing a seat and getting settled. If you'll open up uh, your Bibles to Joshua chapter one, we're going to be in the book of Joshua this morning in a famous and a very familiar passage for probably many of us. As you're turning there, I simply want to ask you a question as we begin, and that's this. How do you feel about new things? How do you respond to new situations, new adventures, new clothes, new opportunities? Uh, For my kids, one of them responds with great passion, great excitement, that anything new is awesome. For one of my other children, new is often threatening and stressful and challenging. But no matter their different proclivities and their tendencies, this Christmas for them, new came in this shape. And they both love new. All right, now we're already taking dog modeling contracts as they're coming in as he's sporting his winter flannel here. But this is Bear. Bear is the newest addition to our family. And so our kids have loved new this Christmas. New has come in this precious shape that has been utterly fun, except when he's nibbling on my exposed toe before I have coffee in the morning. But new has been fun. But really, for many of us, new isn't always fun. Uh, Maybe for you, new is typically fun. For those of you that are Enneagram 7s like my wife, new is always great and fun. For me, new is sometimes threatening. Uh, So every Christmas I get new clothes, which I always assume is a bit of an assault and a condemnation on what I currently wear. And honestly, if you were to walk into my bedroom right now, you'd notice that all of the new clothes I received are still sitting in a package on the ground, which doesn't show favor and kindness to those that gave them. But for me, new in the shape of clothes often feels threatening because I don't know what to put it with. I don't know how to coordinate it with what I already own. I don't know how to work it into my repertoire and my cycle of clothing. It feels challenging. New isn't always fun for some of us. And really, as we step into a new year, new isn't always really that most exciting kind of deal. For me, as I think back to new, as I think back to different experiences of new in my life, one of the things that always shapes kind of my feeling up towards new things was my experience for the first time ever as a new missionary in a new country that was entirely with a new culture that I had never been a part of. Back in 2001, Blake Jennings and I both led different Grace Bible mission trip teams to a Muslim country in Central Asia. It was the farthest I had ever been from home. It was the most unfamiliar country and culture that I had ever been in. It was incredibly threatening as I thought about it. As we got there, within the first 12 hours of being on the ground with our two teams, Blake and I ended up in an electronics store where we bought a series of different TVs and DVD players. By 2001, we might have also been buying VCRs as well. Uh, But we had been buying all these electronics so that we could show the Jesus film to college Muslim students that were in that country. It was a bit stressful, it was a bit uh, challenging, not only just being in a new country, but buying electronic goods that we were going to use for illegal purposes in this country. It's pretty stressful. I remember buying these and walking them through the streets back to our apartment where we settled in and got situated and locked the two doors that were to the apartment and finally caught our breath. Blake would eventually leave and take off to go back to his apartment where he was with his team when about two minutes after Blake departed, there was a knock at the door. Thinking it was Blake, thinking that Blake forgot something, I went to the door and I opened the inner door of our apartment that was a loud and heavy metal door that created created all kinds of sound. And as I was reaching for the outer door to let in the guests that had been knocking, all of a sudden I heard loud Russian words that I didn't know or understand or feel any bit familiarity with. So I eventually immediately did what most people would do, which was jump to the worst case conclusion of what was happening. And I concluded that the Russian police had arrested Blake Jennings, that they've come now to arrest me as well and the rest of our team. And without, without not even being here for 24 hours, we were going to be shipped out of the country and sent packing back home. 
I was there at the time with one of my other roommates. His name was Travis, who would go on to the Air Force as a para jumper rescue guy, which helps me feel a little bit better about my man card with what I'm about to tell you. Because what he and I eventually did in the next seconds that unfolded was what any brave man would do. We ran to the opposite end of the apartment, got into a dark corner, and just held each other as we uncontrollably shook. All right? Eventually our breathing subsided and our wits came about us and, or at least some of our wits, and we then proceeded to army crawl throughout our apartment to hide the stacks of cash that we had smuggled into the apartment. I don't know why. We didn't want to be in front of the windows. We didn't want to be seen. Another 10 minutes would go by and the knocking would subside and we finally realized, wow, I guess we're okay. But I remember that moment, those first 12 hours in a new country as a new missionary were incredibly stressful, incredibly threatening, and not awesome, and not fun at all. And so really for me, as I think about new experiences, I often think about those moments because new often feels threatening, it feels uncertain, it feels unsure. And for us, as we think about 2020, as we begin to step into a new year, for some of us, we hit that New Year's Eve party. We blew the little fun little window or little blow things. I don't know how to describe them. I'm just being awkward right now, right? Uh, and we're just kicking into a new year and just so excited. For some of us, as we, if we're honest, as we look back on 2019, there are moments and there are chapters of 2019 that are marked with deep disappointment, deep challenge, deep regret that really makes it difficult for us to turn the corner with excitement and with boldness toward 2020. And honestly, for Marcy and I, as we think back on 2019, as we've had some time, as life has slowed down to reflect, there are chapters of 2019 that are frankly characterized by deep disappointment for us. Things that we thought God was going to do that he didn't do in the manner that we thought he was going to do it. Things that we thought he was going to fix that he didn't fix in the way or the pace or the timing that we thought he would. Things that were not just shattered, but pulverized in ways that we couldn't put back together. At least not quickly. And so for us, as I think back to 2020, as I think toward 2020, if I'm honest, there's an element in me that wonders, what's in store for 2020? Am I ready for it? (laughs) Am I excited for it? I feel like I got some unresolved stuff from 2019 that's coming with me into 2020 that's shaping how I feel about a new year. Which is why I really like Joshua chapter 1 this morning as we begin a new year. Because Joshua chapter 1 is going to mark the beginning of a major new chapter in Israel's history. And ultimately what Joshua and that generation is going to have to deal with in the marker of that new chapter in their history is something that I think that we have to deal with as well as we move from 2019 to 2020. Joshua chapter 1, an incredibly familiar passage. I want to kind of put it within the prism of looking at a new year. Because what we're going to see in Joshua chapter 1 is that first and foremost, that I think Joshua, as the leader of the nation and as the nation as a whole, is going to face a crisis of courage. We know Joshua 1, we know the refrain to be strong and courageous that's going to litter the end of the chapter that's going to be what we most are familiar with, what my kids have memorized But how do we get there? And why was that the refrain that God had to give to the nation? Why was that so needed? Ultimately, because I think as they begin Joshua chapter 1, as they hear their call of God and have to respond to it, it's going to create a crisis of courage, both for Joshua and for the nation. Think about it from Joshua's perspective. As we begin Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, text tells us this. Then now it came about at the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Moses, his servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all the people to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. 
my Enneagram 7 friends would have been like, charge, let's go, right? I think for Joshua and for the majority of the nation, it would have created a crisis of courage for them. Excitement for what God wanted to do, excitement for what God could do. But in reality, a crisis of courage in that moment as the call of God came and as the chapter turned in the book to a new chapter in the history of Israel. I think it would have elicited a crisis of courage. Why? Think about it from Joshua's perspective. Joshua is going to replace a legend. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Who led, he led Israel out of slavery. He handed them the law. He was their president, poet, and warrior all in one. And Joshua's got to replace that guy. I love the text here in verse 1 when it describes Joshua as Moses' servant or his aide or his just assistant, right? That Joshua's got to fill that guy's shoes. That guy who also couldn't lead the nation into what God was going to have for Joshua and the nation under his leadership. Joshua would have likely probably compared himself to Moses and thought, who am I stacked up next to this guy? Not only who am I, but if this guy couldn't do it, you want me to do it? Are you crazy, right? The insecurity, the comparison would have created a crisis of courage, I know, for Joshua. I think it would have also created a crisis of courage for the nation itself. Think about it from the nation's perspective. They would have just witnessed 40 years of disappointment. They had just witnessed 40 years of the delay of God's fulfillment of his promises. They just witnessed 40 years of God's discipline on a nation. And now God's saying the discipline is done. The delay is done. It's now time to enter in. Was there excitement? I'm sure there was. Before a generation that just witnessed 40 years of disappointment, delay, and discipline, I think it created a crisis of courage for them. Why is it in my generation we're going to fulfill what that epic generation couldn't? Why is my generation going to be any different to not fall under the discipline of God that that generation fell under? I think it created a crisis of courage for Joshua. It created a crisis of courage for that generation. And ultimately, as God unfolds the task that's in front of them, it's a massive task, right? Notice again the text. Notice how he goes further on. And he says, again, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am given to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. I think as that great call of God washes over the nation, over Joshua, while they ought to have elicited some sense of deep faith in God, I think in the midst of the massiveness of the task, And the massiveness of what God is saying he's going to do, I think it also would have created a crisis of courage to say, whoa, you're about to do what? I'm I'm not ready for that. We've been wandering in a wilderness for 40 years and we can't find our way out of a paper bag, right? And now you want us to cross a river, defeat enemies, and occupy a land that's that massive? How about we just take the coast, right? Right. How about we just take the river and take the little riverbank and we'll call it a day, right? That's good for 2020, right? And so I think in the midst of this moment that would have felt incredibly encouraging and affirming, you would think, I think it elicits a crisis of courage for Joshua and for the generation. I think for many of us, as we think about 2020 and a new beginning and a new year, that I think it's possible that not just for Israel in the midst of a new chapter, but for us, 2020 can, for some of us, create a crisis of courage. 
thinking about what God might have for us in 2020, thinking about the disappointments of 2019 as we then try to round a corner toward a new year. For some of us, it can create a crisis of courage. And I just want to ask you as you think about it this morning, because really new beginnings are not all new puppies and new clothes and new adventures, right? There's stuff that we're bringing into a new year from this past year. And I simply want to ask you, how do you feel about a new year? Honestly. How are you really feeling as you come into this brand new year, thinking about what's ahead? As you think about 2020, simply want to ask you, what is the call of God in your life that creates a crisis of courage? What is it you sense God is asking? What is it you sense God is calling you towards this upcoming year that, if you're honest, it creates some trepidation and some hesitation? Maybe it's not excitement. Maybe it's not real faith, but it's a fear as to, ah, I don't know. The call of God for the Joshua and for the nation created a crisis of courage. I think for some of us, what we sense that God has for us can create a crisis of courage in the new year as well. Maybe you're sitting here going, I don't know what the call of God is for 2020. I don't know what he has for me. If that's the case, and that may be the case for a lot of us, I simply want to challenge you before the new year picks up in full speed that you just take some time and you say, Lord, what is it you have for me? We're not typically a people that stop, that reflect, that think, that process, that get to quiet and solitude. And maybe you can't answer that because you don't know what the call of God is for you in 2020. You don't know what he has for you. Maybe for some of us it's not we're not willing to listen. Maybe for some of us it's not that we're not willing to risk. That we want safety, we want security, we want stability. And so the call of God doesn't threaten us because we're so bolstered and fortressed in by our sense and our pursuit of safety and security that the call of God doesn't threaten us because we've built a fortress around our lives. But for some of us, and honestly, this is probably where from Marcy and I have been and where I've been a lot toward the end of the fall of 2019 was how did the disappointments of 2019 create a crisis of courage for you as you look at 2020? How did the unresolved issues of this past year, how did the unresolved disappointments of this past year create a crisis of courage that prevent you from walking into 2020 with a boldness and with a renewed faith and a reckless pursuit of the Lord and what he has for you? What does it look like for you? One of the things I love about sports is that you can be the Texas A&M football team and get utterly shellacked by LSU. And then you turn the chat page and you walk into a bowl game and the score resets at 0-0, right? And you just whip up on OSU, right? Sports and, and, and sports and whether it's games or seasons are great because you can reset the score. You can get to 0-0 from the next game the next week around or you can reset it 0-0 the next season no matter how bad your season was, right? That's why I love sports. Life doesn't work that way, right? You don't just reset the score that easily on life's disappointments as if you're back to zero, zero, and you've got a fresh slate. It's not how it works. I was uh, processing even with Marcy this weekend, and, and she's been reading a book that uh, it really grabbed me this, uh, this weekend uh, by Lisa Turkist, uh, titled, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way. And I want you to listen to what Lisa says, thinking about this idea of disappointment and our necessity to process it. She says this, The most tightly knit aspects of life snag, unravel, and disintegrate before our very eyes. And so we are epically disappointed. But we aren't talking about it. We don't even feel permission to do so, or we just don't know how to process our disappointments. Especially not in Bible study or Sunday church, because everyone says, Be grateful and positive, and let your faith boss your feelings around. 
She goes on and she says, I do believe we need to be grateful and positive and let our faith boss our feelings around. But I also think there's a dangerous aspect to staying quiet and pretending we don't get exhausted by our disappointments. If we don't open up a way to process our disappointments, we'll be tempted to let Satan rewrite God's love story as a negative narrative, leaving us more than slightly suspicious of our creator. I think for a lot of us, as we think about 2020, if we've not properly, fully processed with community the disappointments of 2019, it's likely that we come into 2020 suspicious of our creator that maybe he's not that good. Maybe his purposes are not that great for 2020. Maybe he actually has failed us, even though we sing that he hasn't failed us, right? That he won't fail us. Often our worship creates a dissonance in our experience, if we're ultimately honest, right? I love that she goes on even further, thinking about if we can move beyond just being able to process. And she says this, that there are times in life when things aren't just broken, but they're shattered beyond repair. Shattered to the point of dust, But you can't glue dust back together and it's hard to hold dust in your hand. And as a result, dust begs us to believe the promises of God no longer apply to us. But what if God desires to make something completely brand new? We think the shattering in our lives could not possibly be for any good. But what if the shattering is the only way to get dust back to its basic form so that something new can be made? Dust doesn't have to signify the end. Dust is often what must be present for the new to begin. I think ultimately what she does is two things for us. I think one is, in those quotes, is that she's going to challenge us in the midst of those of us that feel like there's really profound disappointments in 2019. We've got to process them. We can't tuck them under a rug. We can't just swallow them, act that they're not there. Because ultimately what ends up happening is we open a door and the enemy comes in and begins to chip away at our understanding of who God is, his character, his purposes, and his plan. But in the context of community, as we open, as we process, as we walk through those things, we begin reminded of the truth of the fact that God does more in and through the shattered and the dust-like remains of our lives at times. And he can remake things and redeem things in ways we never could have imagined. And I love that she begins to lift our eyes back up to our God and our creator who is good. Because what God's going to do for Joshua and the nation is he's not going to say, hey, Moses was great, and you got a ways to go, right? <laughs> He's not going to say, yeah, my, my, my call is actually pretty small. You can figure this out. He's going to say, no, no, what I need you to place your focus on, what I need you to see, the reason that you're going to have a cause for courage is because of these three ideas that I want to draw your attention to, and they're all about me. I've got to lift your eyes up to see me and my character and my purposes and my processes and not the comparison and insecurity that you feel as you look beside you. And not the disappointments as you look in the past that check for you your sense of what you think is possible. I want to lift your eyes up so that you are reminded as to who I am and you're preoccupied with me. That brings hope, that brings renewal. Notice what he says again as you pick it up back in verse 3. Notice how he begins to highlight for Joshua and for this generation the actual nature of his promises. Verse 3, he says, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. Just as I spoke to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. He runs, rolls the red carpet of his promises out to Joshua and the nation and says, look, hey, don't miss what I've promised. 
I know that you saw a delay to the fulfillment of my promises. I know that you saw a generation that was disciplined and missed out on the fulfillment of my promises, but they have not changed. In fact, I love the repetition of the words all, every, and no in that section. That he leaves no margin, he leaves no space for doubt. He says, all that I have promised is incredibly massive and I'm going to bring fulfillment to it. In fact, not just that he reminds him of his promises, but he reminds him of his presence as well. When he says at the end of verse 5, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Harkens back to Numbers 9, that, uh, in which you remember that God going about with the nation of Israel as a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of smoke by day, that his presence with the nation was incredibly visual, tangible, and obvious. And he says, just as I was with Moses in those days, I'm going to be with you, Joshua, and with this generation as you step in and pursue this great call. I will not abandon you and I will not forsake you as we sang this morning. He's going to remind him not just of his promises, but of his presence as well, which harkens back to what Jesus will say in Matthew 28, Matthew 18, right? Great commission, go and make disciples of all nations and lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. That in the midst of the great call of God, it always comes on the heels of the great reassurance of his presence and of his promises. In fact, he's going to say then, lastly here, in terms of his power, uh, that not only do we have his presence and his, uh, and his promises that I think are reassuring, but ultimately it's his power that I think is inspiring. Because what he's going to say here, and, and kind of it's easy to miss, but if you're looking through these verses, what happens is he's going to say in the famous passage that comes in verse 6, when he says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. He's going to turn the corner. He's going to address the nation. He's going to say, I need you to be strong. I need you to be courageous. And you are going to do these things. But notice the one occurrence of you shall comes on the heels of seven different ways that God has said what he's going to do. Right? Their participation, their obedience, their ability to follow through always comes on the heels of God's extravagant promises of what he's going to do on our behalf. We get one you shall statement on the heels of seven different I will statements. Right, That's Joshua 1, that's Old Testament, that's New Testament. God's commands always come on the heels of his great provision of resources to fulfill what he's called us to do. Always. Old Testament is New Testament. In the, in the midst of the great task that God's given to Joshua and the nation, he says, look, you have my promises, you have my presence, and you have my power. You don't need to be afraid, so cooperate and lean in with me. Lean in. It's interesting, as the passage unfolds, what we get as the passage ends is a literary chiasm, which is fancy literary word for this, all right? This is how verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 lay out. You're going to get this repetition uh, that's going to be moving toward a middle here that is going to be unique. Ultimately, what verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 are is a sandwich. All right? Uh, verses 5 and 9, the comment, I will be with you, is the bread. Be strong and courageous that you may have success is your lettuce, tomato, and cheese. If you are healthy and like vegetables on your burger, I do not. All right? <laughs> <clears throat> to me, it's just all bread and cheese, all right? Which gets to the meat of the burger, which is verse 8, which is the book of the law. What verses 5 to 9 are doing as we move away from uh, kind of a preoccupation, or not move away from, but as we kind of think about, well, how are we to be preoccupied with the promises, the presence, and the power of God? What Joshua, or God's going to do for the nation and for Joshua here is bring all of their focus to the word of God. That if you want to be reminded consistently as to the person, the promises, and the presence of God, you have to be men and women of the book. 
And he's going to talk here about, I'm going to be with you. He's going to talk about, hey, I need you to be strong and courageous. He's going to say, hey, you're going to have success. Don't be fearful. But ultimately, it all comes down to the center point, which is this. To be men and women that are focused on the book of the law. That what he wanted for Joshua, what he wanted for the nation, was that they would be men and women that were focused on the book of the law. In fact, he's going to say it in a couple different ways. The first is this. He's going to say that I want you to focus on the book. Notice how he says it uh, in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. The idea there is there's a kind of focus on it that we not miss it, that we not neglect it. He goes on further and he says, I don't want you just to focus on it, but I want you to follow through on it. Notice how he says it as he goes on a little bit further. He says, you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. He says it up a little bit earlier. He says, I don't want you to walk away from it from the left or to the right. The idea is that we're to bring our focus to it. And as we're focused on it, we're to follow through on it. Or to put it a different way, I need you to hear it and I need you to obey it. I need you to hear and I need you to do. But for the nation of Israel and for Joshua in the midst of their crisis of courage, they were going to have a cause for courage based on the fact that God extended his promises, his presence, and his power. But they were going to be consistently reminded of that in the midst of their crisis of courage if they were going to be a nation that was rooted in the word of God and the book of the law. Otherwise, there's no way they would keep sight of it. Otherwise, what they would have sight of is their disappointments. Otherwise, what they'd have sight of is all the reasons why they ought not to have faith. Otherwise, what they'd have sight of is all the reasons why they could compare to someone who was a better leader, more experienced of a leader, that, would have, that if he couldn't have done it, why could I do it, right? That everything their eyes would naturally drift toward would have created and exasperated that crisis of courage. And so God says to the nation and to Joshua, I need you to be focused here. Be focused on the book of the law. Meditate on it day and night. And follow it. Don't depart from it to the left or to the right. And I need you to do all that it's committed, not just parts of it, not just the parts you like. As I've thought about 2020, as I've thought about a new year, to be honest, for us as a young family, often what I do most mornings is I grab my cup of coffee and I just go on a walk because there's no dogs and there's no kids to chat at me and I can pray and I can have some space, all right? But what's also meant is that for the last year or so, I've got a vibrant prayer life, but I've really not created and cultivated space to be really in the word consistently and deeply. Because if I'm sitting in my living room trying to read, everyone's going to be around me, all right? So either I've got to get up earlier, or I've got to find other spaces to do that. And so for me, thinking about 2020, I'm going to continue to walk well with the Lord with a vibrant prayer life, but I've got to rebolster it and rebuild in some consistent, meaningful, deep time in the word. Rooted into the truth of God, rooted into the word of God, so that it transforms and it calls me afresh and it calls me to pursue him with greater abandon and greater commitment. Ultimately, if there is a best next step for you as you think about 2020 New Year's resolutions, if it's the year of the Bible, then this worked out perfectly, right? I want to challenge you to, to find community this spring and to get in the word of God. To find community of some kind that you can process disappointments, you can process life, that you can know and be known, and in the midst of that kind of community, that you can gather around the word, to know the word, to be transformed by the word. The Sunday mornings are meant to be an appetizer to what is occurring the rest of the week for you in your own devotional life, getting to walk in the word. A couple ways to do that. First would be, uh, we're going to kick off this semester, the spring study for our main study is going to be the book of Ruth. A great book about the disappointments of life and what God does in the midst of the dust of that disappointments and how he creates something new. 
Also, I quoted from Lisa Turkus' book uh, that we're actually going to have a book club about, uh, and some women will be going through that. So if you'd love to jump into that book, if, it, if the quotes from it and the ideas behind it seem to really resonate, we're going to have a book club. You can simply email Lisa Sledge to jump into it. I'm excited about that for a series of our women. Lastly, if you're uh, fairly new to Southwood, if you've gone, hey, I don't really know about Wednesday morning Bible studies. I'm not really sure about book clubs. I don't really even know how to navigate. This feels like a big church. We're going to do something brand new this spring that we've never done before. Uh, we're going to launch what we're going to call kind of our Cultivate launch groups for the four Wednesdays of February. That if you're looking to really find community for the first time here in Southwood, you're not really sure where to navigate. We're going to create an open space those four Wednesdays of February to allow you to jump into a group uh, that's starting for the first time ever. Uh, not knowing how to navigate all those things. If you're not sure of all the things that are going on and you're going, hey, where's my best first step? I'm going to say, come for these four Wednesdays in February. We're going to pop you in a community, let you be known and known about what we want a group to be here at Grace, what we want a group to do here at Grace. In terms of the DNA of a group here at Grace, we're going to highlight that for you, walk through it, have time, even a staff with you there for those four Wednesdays. And so if you're going, hey, uh, I've been here for three years, I kind of know what to do, great. If you're going, hey, I've been here for three weeks, I'm not really sure where to go, I'm not really sure where to step, I'd say come join us these four Wednesdays in February, we'd love to have you. I opened this morning with a story about my first time as a new missionary uh, in um, a new country. what I would have realized when my roommate and I finally got our wits about us was there was another locked door between us and the loud Russian barking that was occurring that we could probably just look through the people and figure out who it was, right? We didn't need to freak out. And so, again, finally, once we calmed down, we realized, okay, the, the knocking has subsided, and I think things are okay. And so we walked to the door, looked through the people, and we realized it wasn't the Russian police at all on the other side of the door. It was our other two roommates, who had learned some Russian while grocery shopping that day and thought it'd be really funny (laughs) to bark Russian at us. And so all of our army crawling and all of our fear and shaking was utterly pointless. Why do I share that? I think for many of us, as we think about 2020 and we think about the fear and anxiety that it elicits, we have two options. We can stay locked into an apartment that's safe and secure and miss out on all that God has. Or we can move forward in faith and open the door and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you afresh for fresh and new disappointments in 2020. But I know that you're good and I know that your purposes are good and that even if my world gets shattered to dust, that you can remake things. And the question becomes, will we stay tucked away, hidden, not wanting to be disappointed again, not wanting to risk, not wanting to be stretched on what God has for us on the other side of the door? Or will we open it and step out in faith? As men and women of the book, men and women in reckless pursuit of our God who is great, who has great purposes for us that may not be fulfilled in the ways that we think they will be or the ways that we hope they will be, but who is moving in ways that we can't even imagine or understand. My hope for us this morning, my hope for us this year is that we will be men and women of the book, men and women deep and open in community processing the disappointments of life, but stretching our pursuit toward the Lord and our abandonment and our recklessness to risk for him and for what he's called us to in the world at large, that we would step toward and pursue with abandon. I'm going to pray for us. Lord God, we thank you. Uh, that In the midst of a new year, in the midst of great changes, whether by life stages or by puppies or by kids or whatever happens in life, that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In the midst of new chapters, in the midst of new calls of our life, Lord, I thank you that there is a faithlessness and a steadiness as to your character, as to your purposes, as to your promise, and ultimately of your presence. 
that you've not abandoned us, that you've not forsaken us, that you're with us, just as you were with Moses and his generation, just as you were with Joshua and his generation. In fact, even more so, as your spirit is coming and dwelled in us, that we're reminded of your truth, reminded of your purpose, reminded of your character. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk deeply with you this year, that for some of us, that there are disappointments that we've yet to process, that we're scared to process. Lord, I pray that you would provide a safe kind of community here at Southwood that will allow us to process through those things. To remind you that you're good. To remind you that you are working in ways that we can't even imagine at times. To remind you that uh, often our timetables are not yours. But that you work beauty out of the ashes. That you work redemption out of tragedy. That you work good out of things that we could never have imagined. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd bolster our faith. I pray that you would renew in us a commitment to pursue you and to love you deeply and to follow you no matter the cost. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. You guys have a great Sunday. We'll see you guys next week.